Well, good morning, East Point. It's great to be with you today. It's a joy to be back. Last week I was back in Omaha building beds for the, the outreach we do there called Sleep in Heavenly Peace, and we built 84 beds for kids in need. And uh, so that's a, that's a pretty cool thing. I guess it's great to say I'm back in the saddle with you again this week. And uh, we've been looking at God's love letters, and we've been having these letters from the book of Revelation delivered in different ways each week. Uh, and, uh, you know, throughout history, one of the primary ways that letters have been delivered or messages have been delivered is via horseback. A lot of you remember back, um, well, you probably don't remember yourself this far back to the 1700s, but Paul Revere, of course, and had the, uh, the British are coming was the message that he delivered via horseback. Uh, and the American West, a lot of it was opened up when the Pony Express, although short-lived, made a big difference, had the letters delivered that way. And so today we decided that we are going to have the letter delivered via horseback. So if you are along the center aisles here, we just ask that you watch out here uh, for the horse. Watch out when you leave, too, in case the horse leaves any droppings or anything like that. All right, and here it comes. So, all right. So... Well, this isn't, this isn't exactly what I had in mind, but uh, I guess that this was within the budget today, so. All right, hey, thanks there, cowboy. Oh, whoa, whoa, hey. All right, there we go, there we go. All right. That looked, uh, that looked an awful lot like uh, Walker, Texas Ranger. Is that Chuck Norris that just came through here? Tell you what, if Chuck Norris delivers a sermon, you better listen to him. You don't want to cross that guy. So, well, here's here's the letter this week. This week is to the church in Smyr uh, excuse me in Pergamum. So here's what we have. This letter from Jesus. It says to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write. These are the words of him who has this sharp, double-edged sword. And one of the things you're going to notice about these letters from Jesus is that they have this language in there which is almost frauding or making fun of the systems of power that Rome has set up. Basically, almost mocking them and saying, no, like, they think they have the power, but God's the one who really has the power. You see, Pergamum was known uh, as the city of the sword. In fact, if they, they had a, a seal uh, of the city of Pergamum, and it had a sword on it. And the reason for that was because Rome had given them, they were one of a few cities who Rome had given them the authority to carry out death sentences on their own. Now, if you know much about the history of Christianity, you know that early Christians were often persecuted. And as a result of that persecution, it even ended in death, as we'll see later on in this letter. And so what Jesus is saying to the church in Pergamum, you live in the city of the sword, but keep in mind, I'm the God who has the double-edged sword. I'm the one who ultimately will bring justice. Do you need that reminder today? It says, I know where you live, which kind of sounds creepy if you say it in the wrong voice. I know where you live, right? But listen to what he says. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Wow. You see, in, in the book of Revelation, what we have is we see that there's this power struggle that's going on, but it's really not a struggle at all. In fact, in the book of Revelation, there's about 40 references 
to God's throne or the, thro- or the thrones that are around God's throne as we see in chapters 4 and 5. And there's only about three symbols of Satan's throne. And that's done intentionally. The writer is trying to convey to us this idea that Satan's throne is so small and pathetic compared to God's throne. Of all the tricks, of all the lies, of all the slander that Satan has, they all fail in comparison to the greater power of Almighty God. But it says here, where Satan has his throne. What is he talking about there? Well, Pergamum was actually in a valley uh, underneath a hillside that rose a thousand feet above the city. And that high place was the home of two major temples. One of them was the temple to Asclepios, which I hope I'm saying right, who was thought to be a god of healing. And the symbol of Asclepios was that of a snake, where Satan has his throne. And people would literally come there from all over the world for the supposed healing powers of Asclepios. And get this, at night they would open up the temple for people who were sick to come in and to sleep in this temple. And then, I don't know if they called them priests or whatever, but they would release these snakes. And if the snake rubbed up against you, you would thought to be healed. As opposed to me, I would just be dead if a snake rubbed up against me while I was sleeping. And so that is one thought about this where Satan has his throne. The other one is that on that same mountain, towering a thousand foot above the city, was the altar and the temple to Zeus. You've heard that name before. The altar platform of the ledge was 20 foot higher than the rest of the temple and about 90 feet by 90 feet square. The altar absolutely dominated the landscape. And you could see it from almost every point in the city. Can you imagine trying to be a Christian in a city where it felt like the other gods were above you and looking over you and dominating the landscape? Can you imagine trying to share God's word in a city where they would simply say, look up to our gods instead? They're right there. You can see them. And so it's in this context that the church faced a great deal of threats. But but I ask you the question this morning, in such a city as Pergamum, what do you think the greatest threat to the church would be? Do you think it would be the powers outside? Do you think it would be that dominating force of seeing the temples to Asclepios and to Zeus up there on that mountainside dominating where you can see that altar from anywhere in the city? Or do you think the greater threat would come from within? Let's take a look and see. It says in the next verse, Jesus says to them, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, not to be confused with Herod Antipas, that's another character who was not a Christian, 
my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Did you catch that? There's already been a, a Christian here who has been martyred. Antipas. And keep in mind, this wasn't a church that had several different, or a city that had several churches spread out throughout. Instead, this is a city that had a church. I don't know how many believers, but probably a small number. Antipas would have been like a brother to them. They probably would have dined in his home and he in theirs. And they've seen him put to death. And just for emphasis, it seems like Jesus repeats where Satan lives. This is a dark place. Satan's power is clear. And yet these fellow believers have chosen to stand firm and to trust in the invisible power of God. The threat to the church in Pergamum was not outside of the church. And you know what, East Point? The threat to us is not outside the church either. Kingdoms, countries, presidencies will come and go. Freedoms will come and go. But God will remain on His throne. The game of thrones, if you will, in this context is not even a contest. God is in control. And He will hold you fast. But, Jesus continues in verse 14 and says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites. Remember Balaam? He had an animal too that he rode on, didn't he? It wasn't Andre's horse though, was it? Balaam had a donkey. Maybe Andre should have been a donkey too for this delivery. We didn't have that in the budget, so we got a hobby horse instead. But you remember what happened with Balaam? Back in the book of Numbers, the Israelites were preparing to enter the promised land. They had already won a couple of decisive victories. And there they stood on the heels, on the outside of the promised land, looking in. And so Balak, the king of Moab, invites Balaam, who is like a sorcerer or a seer, not one who trusted in Yahweh, but one who trusted in anything he could, to come and to basically prophesy against and bring curses against the Israelites. But there were seven different oracles that happened and in these seven oracles, Balaam every time comes back and basically says, God's on their side. We can't do anything about it. And in fact, in Numbers 23.8, it says, how can I curse someone God has not cursed? How can I denounce someone the Lord has not denounced? And it's the same question that we have in Pergamum, isn't it? And it's the same question that we have here in America. 
If God's on his throne, we have nothing to worry about. But what did Balaam do instead? He decided that there was no way that he could ever turn and get God to turn on the Israelites. That God was too powerful, so instead he chose, instead of working on the outside, he chose to work within them. And it says here in this text, he taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. What we read there is that Balaam taught Balak to go and to get some prostitutes. And the Israelites prostituted themselves with sexual immorality. And God's punishment came against them as a result. And what we see here in Pergamum is that Pergamum, the church, is being destroyed within by seduction. The seduction of sexual immorality, not through power. You see, Satan will never win in the game of thrones against God, but he will seduce you in the shadows. Church, the greatest threat that comes against us is not what Satan can do from the outside through power. Satan's greatest play has never been power. Satan's greatest play has always been seduction. And we live in a land that has been seduced. We live in a land just like Rome that was filled with sexual immorality. And that has made its way into the church. I'm not just speaking of East Point. I'm speaking of the church as a whole in America. We have been seduced. Maybe that mountainside standing over us isn't Zeus. Maybe that mountainside standing over us with the temple at the top is the big Hollywood letters. The reality is, is that our country had what was called a sexual revolution. Some of you lived through it. Back starting in the 50s, or really the 60s is when it hit in full force. The reality is, is that it really wasn't a revolution. There were some good things that came out of that era, such as equal pay for equal work, which I think we would all say was long overdue. However, what happened is that sexual decency was done away with. And I don't want to suggest to you that America was some pipe dream before with sexuality. That's simply not true. But the reality is, is that sexual immorality has been celebrated in our culture for the better part of half a century now. And over course of time, that has made its way into the church so that our sexual immorality has been heightened and even celebrated. Now, I want to be clear when we're talking about this here, that when we say sexual immorality, we're not just talking about uh, things that have to do with gender or same-sex attraction. When we read Scripture, what we find is that we are all sexually broken people. Every one of us 
part of our sexuality in some way, shape, or form has suffered as the result of the fall. This is something that we should all take very seriously. We are all sexually broken people, every one of us. For some of us, that means that we're attracted when we shouldn't be. For others, it might mean that we deal continuously with lust. For some, it might be that there's such a shame around sexuality that it's difficult to ever connect with your husband or your wife. I don't know what sexual struggle you have, but in some way, shape, or form, we all have a sexual struggle. And the sooner we acknowledge that, the better off we will be. Because as ashamed as you may be about your sexual struggle, the, the, the truth is, is that Jesus is not ashamed of you. Jesus is not embarrassed by you. He knows your sin. And He came to free you from that sin. He came to offer grace and healing and transformation. And that is not an easy journey. It's not something that generally happens like that. Don't we all wish it would? But it's something that along a lifetime of experiencing God's grace, we can experience transformation too. And that transformation doesn't always look the same. But God in His holiness comes and He, he brings that healing into our lives. But we have to remember that there are so many different things that are working to destroy us from within. Part of it is our own sinful nature. Part of it is the fact that, that, that sex has worked its way into virtually every form of media. You don't have to go seek it out at the, at the pink buildings at truck stops or along the interstate, do you? It finds its way into your homes. And yes, we can talk about pornography all we want, but the reality is, is that most of the TV that comes to us through forms like Netflix and Amazon Prime, most of those shows are what would, be, would have been considered pornography just a few decades ago. We must be very careful. I am not calling us to be Amish. I'm not calling us to go and to live completely separate. I don't believe that's what God wants. I love Amish furniture. I have great respect for the character of their people. But I believe that God wants us to be in the world without being of the world. And at, central to, at center to that is sexual purity. Have you been taking sexual purity lightly? We've seen an overcorrection as well in my generation. A lot of my generation grew up with purity pledges, which I grew up with and I thought was, was fine, but there were some that were legalistic in its form. And we've seen an overcorrection amongst my generation and younger to say, well, we're just going to go the opposite direction because I feel so wounded from the legalism that was brought in then. I'm sorry if you've had that experience. Please don't overcorrect to the other side because that overcorrection is not a correction at all. That overcorrection will wrap a millstone around your neck. Another way that we've been seduced is by power. For a long time, Christians have been what I will call the home team in America. 
while not everybody was a Christian, everybody liked to think that they were a Christian, or at least root for the Christians, and to celebrate them. And what's happened over the past 20 years or so is that slowly but surely, and then rapidly at times, Christians have gone from being the home team that is trusted and celebrated to being the visiting team that everybody seems to root against. What I want to remind you is that from churches like Pergamum, what we see is that they were able to endure when they weren't the home team. It is tempting for us to try to fight and get power back. And please hear me, we need godly Christian leaders throughout all, all areas of government. At the same time, we have to recognize that Christianity thrived in an atmosphere that was hostile towards it. We see Christianity thriving in places like China, where the government is trying to do away with it. In the Game of Thrones, Satan's only shot is seduction. Don't be seduced by sex. Don't be seduced by power. But trust that God is on his throne. The two main themes that we see throughout the book of Revelation for us as followers of God is hope and holiness. And our response to when we are seduced by sex and by power is to resort to hope and holiness. A hope that this world is not the end. And in the words of a fine American poet, ain't no grave going to hold my body down. And the other is holiness, responding by saying, I believe that God created me to be an image bearer. And the best way that I can bear his image is when I bear his character. And hope and holiness fuel each other. If you want to have more hope, sometimes you need to grow in your holiness. If you want to have more holiness, you need to take a look at your hope. Are you looking only to this world? Or are you looking to the world that is to come when Christ returns for hope? Are you measuring yourself as a just good enough kind of Christian? Or do you recognize that God calls us to be like Christ? As much grace as it's going to take, we need to be like Christ, not just a little bit better than our neighbors. Being a little bit better than our neighbors makes us really good Pharisees, but lousy Christians. We need to have the humility of Christ as we grow in holiness. Will you fight Satan's seductions with hope and holiness? That is the answer in the book of Revelation. That was the answer in Pergamum. And that is the answer in Columbus, Ohio. Here's how the letter ends. It says, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Again, we don't know a lot about the Nicolaitans, but what we do know is that Balaam literally means Baal conquers. And Nicolaitans, Nike basically, or Nike, was, that was the god of victory or overcoming. You might have heard of a little tennis shoe company that that's their name. That's literally what it means is the Greek god of victory. And Jesus is, again, setting those up as almost a mockery, those two things. And then he goes on to say, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He's not talking about fighting against the, the, the pagans in Pergamon, but against the people who are practicing immorality in the church. 
And so then he says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is what? Victorious. To the one who is victorious against the people who are saying they are the victors. But to the one who is victorious through hope and holiness, I will give some of the hidden manna. Remember the other temptation they had was to eat the food sacrificed to idols. We're not, I don't have time to get into that today. But what we see here is that instead, Jesus is promising them daily bread. Jesus is promising them the manna that appeared to the Israelites every day and gave them enough. And Jesus is saying, I am your daily bread. I am enough for you to overcome temptations of power. I am enough to overcome temptations of sexual immorality. Jesus is enough for you. He is your daily bread. Will you choose to trust him every day? He is the one who can bring us hope and holiness. He is the one who can help us overcome not only what is happening without, but is happening within and within. May you trust the one who has overcome sin and the grave. And may he grow you in your hope and holiness. Amen. Father, we trust in you and we, God, we just, we just confess to you that we are a people who are easily deceived. We are a people who have certain thoughts in our minds and say, well, you know, that, that's not that bad. And Jesus, we just, just confess that um, we, we repent of, of, of those thoughts of, of not that bad. We repent of being good enough Christians who just say, well, we're still better off than, than those pagans are. Jesus, we recognize that you want us to be full image bearers that you want us to, to bear the character of, of you. We know that that can happen through your Holy Spirit, and so we trust in you. We believe in you. We pray for healing for our hearts and our minds that have bought into Satan's lies. We pray that you offer us that healing as your word promises that you do, and we know that your word is true. For the person who is struggling sexually today, Lord, we pray for that healing. We pray for that peace. We pray that they will know that you are not ashamed of them, but that you have come to bring that healing and that peace and that endurance and that transformation so that they and their children and their children's children can all be blessed by the grace that you pour out on us. Bless this church, Lord. May you protect us not only from with outside, but may you protect us from within. May we be a holy people filled with the hope of your faithfulness. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, as we wrap up this service today, a few things I want to remind you of. First, uh, if you have brought an offering, uh, you can give that on the way out. They're offering buckets at both of these doors uh, and you can also give online. We are extremely grateful for your gifts 
as they help us to reach out to this area and continue to fuel the ministry of this church in such important times. Uh, as you leave today, we would ask that uh, you, if you're down front, you can exit through these doors. If you're in the back, you can exit through the back. Uh, we would ask that you leave this room uh, somewhat quickly. You don't have to ride out of here like you're on a horse or anything. Uh, but, uh, but if you have any talking to do and might want to meet up, please do so in the, in the lobby so that we can come through and disinfect the room. Um, but I do ask us uh, today as we close, if you would stand with me. Uh, this has been a crazy week in the life of our country, and we just want to pray, um, pray for our country in this season. Father, election years are always crazy, and this, just, this year just seems, it seems completely nuts, Lord. Um, it, it, we, we are brokenhearted for our country. Um, we long for days of decency, we long for days of equality for all. We long for days of, of hope for our country. And so, Lord, we, we just, just lift our country and the election to you, and we pray for peace and justice and equality. Lord, we pray that, that you would raise us up as, as followers of you um, that, can, that can be voices of of reason and hope and justice and all those things that need to happen that seem like such a tension, Lord. Give us the grace and the wisdom to know how to live in this day. Lord, we do pray for the president as he and his family endure um, the coronavirus, and we do pray for healing for him. And we also pray for protection um, for uh, for presidential candidate Biden and his family. Now, Lord, we recognize that we don't, we don't want to see harm done to either family, that we are people of peace, that, that we want healing and health for our leaders. And we pray that you would do so. We pray, Lord, make us, make us a voice of hope and, and, and of reason and, and give us the character of Christ as we navigate these extremely difficult and tricky times. May we truly be a people where there is justice for all. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.